Hey, Becky, what about this beat for your next song? Mm, it's cool, but I'm into faster stuff lately, like Xfinity that gives me beyond gig speeds. Got it. What about this then? Mm, it sounds powerful, just like Xfinity. Because its supersonic Wi-Fi has three times the bandwidth, you can connect hundreds of devices at once. <laughs> That's what I call power. Unbeatable internet from Xfinity. Made to do anything so you can do anything. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. Requires compatible Xfinity gateway. Limited quantities available. Everyone deserves to feel connected. That's why Cox has high-speed internet to fit any budget. For real. Learn more at cox.com slash ACP. Non-transferable, one per household. Application and eligibility decisions are made by the FCC. Other restrictions apply. Ready for the interview, and if you get a cue live on a laptop, watch what I'm gonna do. Welcome to the show, let them know we got a point of view. Hey, yo, let's have a combo. Say what you feel, be real, that's the motto. Real talk, pronto, Dr. D, PhD, hit the intro. Hold up, wait, gotta be social, network, global, a home for the local. Gotta be social, network, global, a home for the local. Okay, back in the network again for the second time, Dr. <laughs> Stephanie Shuttler. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks again for having me. Well, last time, I got to tell you, that was definitely one of my favorite episodes of all time that I've done. Seriously. It was amazing. Oh, wow. Well, thank you so much. That, that really means a lot to me. Yeah. Well, I just think what you do is really cool. And a lot of people checked it out. And one of those people being my wife, who's like a huge, like wildlife advocate. She was like, that was mm -hmm. good. That was like, I did a stuff oh, I had no clue about that <laughs> she was talking about. So that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I try to do is that especially us in academia, like we're always talking to each other and sharing this. We have all this knowledge and stuff, but we're not really talking to people who, um, or just, you know, non-professionals, just the regular yeah. people out there. So, so that's something I really like to do. Why do you think that is? Why that's such uh, well, that hasn't happened so far as much as like what you're doing. I don't see it. That there, much. Yeah. So there, I would say there's several reasons in most jobs, there's no incentive to do it unless mm. you are specifically hired to do that. So most, most jobs in science, I would say are academia. Um, or at least that's how we were trained. Um, so, so being a professor and when you're a professor, really the way the system has changed in that publications and grant money is most important. So mm -hmm. how much money you bring in and then how much you publish. So you could do all this science communication and outreach, but when you're going up for tenure, that's not something they evaluate you on. You're still supposed to be doing it, but if you don't mm -hmm. do a good job at it or don't do enough, that's not gonna make or break tenure, whereas this other stuff is. And I just think for most jobs, people have too much to do and there's just no time for it. Um, I know, I remember when, um, when Bush was president, he cut a lot of federal jobs. And I remember people talking about how, um, how they weren't necessarily going to rehire that that is that they're taking those positions and condensing it into like one job so somebody had to take on you know two or three jobs so i think just there, people just don't have time to do it and with research and everything else that they have to do it just gets 
thrown by the wayside. But now that we do have science communication issues going on, um, I do think companies and other people um, or in the government and stuff is starting yeah. to pay attention and realize the importance of it because you know, things like climate change, we have lots of data, but people aren't necessarily buying into it or with, with the COVID vaccine, um, same thing. It's been really well researched, but people are still scared to get it. So, um, so yeah, I think it's starting to shift and universities are definitely hiring science communication positions. Um, but, but yeah, for most, for most jobs, it's, I think people want to do it, but you, really can only do it in your spare time. And, and yeah. the work we have already is so much. It's fascinating that you said about um, climate with this. I think this is a good topic based off of the report that just came out from the UN in conjunction with how wildlife and animals play a huge role in climate and how that is a, our, our place in the planet and how that's affecting climate and wildlife. Can you, it's a pretty broad thing, but can you speak on that? Maybe provide some intelligence related to the link <laughs> in this, you know, I think it's important. Yeah, sure. Um, so it, I mean, in general, I think when people think of climate, at least like I think of this, you tend to it being a really abiotic thing, you know, non-living, mm -hmm. but really I'd say the biggest role that nature plays in general is the the carbon sinks so there's these really big forest tree i mean trees take in carbon mm -hmm. so when we cut down trees they're made of carbon so it releases carbon into the atmosphere and then sometimes like even from the soil i know with with palm oil that um that they, when they cut down forest, there's, there's also peat underneath this, or mm -hmm. like the first layer is peat, which also releases carbon. So, so you're not only removing something from the environment that, um, that sucks in carbon, but you're releasing it too. And what animals have to do with it is, um, you know, it's all kind of like the circle of life where everything yeah, is yeah. all interconnected. Um, so animals are really important for, for forests. So um, one way is that they're really important as seed dispersers, um, mammals, birds, they can, you know, carry seeds for, um, depending on how big the animal is. I mean, birds migrate from, you know, from, from different continents. Um, but I do know like for elephants, uh, for forest elephants, that's the animal I studied in for my PhD, like they can travel, um, you know, hundreds of kilometers. So there's, so there's some plants that are specifically evolved to grow specifically with elephants. If they're not, if they don't go through the digestive tract of the elephant, and if they're not, you know, pooped out, <laughs> they, they <laughs> won't <out>. grow. <laughs> Literally. So, <laughs> right, exactly. So, um, so yeah, so if we lose African forest elephants from poaching, then the forests will be restructured and, um, because evolution has created this system for so many millions of years, it's, it's likely that it's not going to be as efficient or good. So, um, so yeah, seed dispersal is, um, a really important way. Also, um, just like, like, like stomping is really important too, like how they form soil. So like large herbivores and ungulates, um, 
like making soil compact. Again, it just helps different vegetation grow or grazing habitat habits yeah. as well. Um, there's with a loss of, um, the American bison and the prairies, it's been, you know, really hard to restore prairies are a really important part of the ecosystem. So, um, so yeah, wildlife play a really important role in, in climate change as well. How does, uh, maybe speak on a little bit about, you know, we've seen a lot of droughts and drying up of places. How does that affect, um, the wildlife aspect and we you know obviously there's a water element of that you know but yeah does that cause like a migration or a change in patterns and how animals move about so it is totally gonna depend on the animal um there's a lot of things to consider which are the size of the animal um how sensitive it is to different disturbances or or maybe other factors in the habitat and then like that geographic area as a whole. So if it's like, so if we're talking about like drought in LA or something like that, um, there might be so much human development that there's really no place for those animals to go and they just die. But in other areas, um, animals, I, I wouldn't say that they're migrating because migrating is a circular pattern. Mm. So like for birds, they go from here here in the Northern hemisphere, they go from North America to South America or Central America and back up. And they do that year after year after year. Um, whereas it's going to be probably more range expansion. So, um, or range, range shifts. So more species are going to be going more North, um, because it's going to, you know, be too hot in those more Southern areas. And, um, or I guess for, for drought, we're talking about, um, so they'll have to go to more wet areas, which mm. would probably be more North, but it could be higher elevation. Um, but some species, you know, like the species at the top of their elevation, you know, they might have nowhere to go. So it, it totally depends on, on those animals, but there, I mean, I don't ever want to spin climate change to be good, but there are some right. species that can benefit from climate change. They can expand mm. their range. They're in really narrow areas. Um, we read a, a scientific paper on whales. I can't remember what species a couple of years ago. And um, they created models on whale range. And for this one particular species, like climate change wouldn't, wouldn't negatively affect them in, mm. in terms of range expansion. But it could, it could in other ways. So maybe, you know, that affects their, the, the prey species they're eating. And then if they don't have enough prey species, then, you know, they can't thrive. So there's, there's so many different variables to consider and it's, it's really hard to tease it all apart. Yeah, I would imagine. So I feel like this is an area where there's just so much information, but it also feels like in many ways we've lost our sense of the future. And like, if we're not actively in that future, let's say, 50 years from now, it kind of almost feels like we don't care about it on some level. Yeah. It's like, how can humans have a hard time existing they in do. the future that they don't, they won't be in. So how do you, as a science, you know, uh, communication specialist in a sense, get people to understand that, like you need to think about something beyond yourself. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's really hard. And I think, I think not even just like, like human beings thinking 
part of, you know, like I'm going to be dead and the future yeah. is carried on, but human beings struggle with that, even with their own selves, like, you right. know, like people like smoking, you know, or, right. or maybe heavy drinking or something like that, or anything that does that, that deals with your health. People are like, Oh, I'll deal with it later. Or this yeah. won't happen to me. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> so, so, um, I mean, I think with climate change though, now we are really starting to see the effects that it's, mm -hmm. it's really that it's not a thing that's 50 years in the future now that we, it really yeah. is now. And I'm turning 40 this year. So I'm not, I mean, I'm getting older, but I'm not like super old, yeah. but I've, I've definitely seen changes over my lifetime. Like I remember just, I don't know, probably in my tens or teens, um, seen like a, a devastating hurricane or fire and it dominated the news for weeks and weeks. And it would be like, that would happen once every five years or something. Yeah. And now it, and hurricanes, especially, it seems like there's a hurricane, like, you know, every few weeks during hurricane season. Um, so, and I think it's, it's affecting, unfortunately affects the poorest people the most worldwide. Yeah. So that, so the people living in developing countries who have really, really low carbon footprints, they don't have the means to move um, and they're experiencing floods, droughts, but it is also affecting us in, in wealthier countries as well. Um, I went to a climate change workshop in North Carolina and they were talking about this too. And um, most of the farmers are probably more conservative, but they're not, they're not denying the climate has changed, mm. um, cause they see it. They can't, yeah. I mean, they've been farming for years and years, so they, they know that there's something different. Um, but yeah, it's more about getting people to, to understand that, that we are causing it. Um, and yeah, that's, it's, it's hard, but I guess, yeah, just like trying to make those links between your personal daily life and, and, um, what's going on now. And for, with all the fires in the West, um, you know, those people may be more open to, to messages and doing stuff about it right now. I'm definitely in the West. I'm experiencing all of this stuff. I mean, we're, we're kind of fortunate because we're in an area where, you know, I live right next to the beach in uh, mm -hmm. Northern Washington, Western Northern Washington, but it's pretty bad out on the West coast. And yeah, I wonder like in the science, you know, science is getting so much coverage actually now in both directions, <laughs> I would mm -hmm. say whether it's good or bad. <laughs> What's your thoughts on that? You know, on people discussing science more in the mainstream um, and how that, uh, how that affects the future of how we view science. Uh, what do what do you mean by bad? I'm just curious. Do you mean well? You know, like, people like, don't believe in science, or they say, okay. "Oh, well, the, you know, the science says that what's you know the the science deniers." I guess you could say they don't believe it. Yeah, you know. I mean, I always think it's good that we're talking about it. Like, like even since the 2016 election here in the United States, I remember anyone hardly talked about climate change, and yeah. now. Like, like, like you said, you hear about it. It was, it was definitely a bigger issue in the last election and you hear it in the news more. Um, so I think anything we're talking, time we're talking about science is good. I do think a conversation about how science is done is long overdue. Mm. And I, I did do that on my podcast because even, even for myself as a scientist, I feel like I didn't really understand science until I went to graduate school, right. even, even doing research and internships and stuff. I don't feel like I really understood the whole process. 
And it's hard to talk about because science is like robust and it works, but there are definite biases in science. There are definitely problems. Like, like I just read recently. So like we talked about universities and the pressure to publish and stuff like that. So only certain types of studies are more, um, journals are willing to accept certain types of studies rather than other types of studies. So if you have something of no result, like that's not very exciting. Like does, I don't know, like does blueberries, do blueberries reduce your risk of cancer? And if you get no result, okay. Like it's not, it's not yeah. exciting and a journal is not ready to publish it. <laughs> right. But if you find that blueberries reduce your risk of cancer by, I don't know, 25% or something, then they're more likely to do it. So there's, so yeah, there's, there's different biases. And I think, I think just scientists being more transparent about everything is really important. Like how it's done. That's a process. I think so many people think that scientists are biased mm-hmm. and, um, so human beings, everyone has biases. Um, we, like you, you can't go throughout life without biases. Is that biases or biases? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. Without any bias. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, like we do go through ethics training and stuff to remove those bi- bias mm-hmm. and, and to um, be aware of them as well. So like we might have bias in terms of like, like choosing what we study and stuff, but in terms of the the results of our study, like I might have an expectation of how it's going to turn out, but I'm not, I mean, and I may be disappointed by the results or something, but I'm not, um, you know, manipulating data to, to, to go that way. Um, so yeah, I think it's really good. We're having conversations about science, but unfortunately we're just so divided. It's so hard to reach the, I don't even want to say the other side, but people with different opinions (laughs) and, I mean, especially with the medical stuff, I can understand because mm-hmm. I, I personally think that our medical system is pretty broken here in the United States. Extremely. And um, like, I've suffered a lot of health issues. Like I, I suffered from chronic migraines for, for a long time and they were getting worse and worse and worse. And I would just go to doctor after doctor and they just kept giving me like different drugs. And I had to go to a functional medicine doctor, which is, you probably know what that is. Yeah, but, I do. Mm-hmm. Um, so for people out there, it's, it's, it's basically, you know, they, they tend to use like more quote unquote natural approaches and mm-hmm. use prescriptions as a last resort and try it. They try to figure out like what's causing your headache though, rather than like treating it. Right. And right away when I saw one of those doctors um, and they cost more money, I don't think my insurance covered it right away. When I saw those doc, one of those doctors, he was like, I bet you have mercury poisoning. And I did. And once I Crazy. got that out of my body, my headaches went away. So, um, so yeah, I do, I do kind of understand where the anti-vaccine community is coming from although of course i don't agree with them right (laughs) i just want to make that very clear you're like wait a minute let's be clear (laughs) (laughs) but um and then you know like people are having like all these like weird diseases and um like just these like chronic health problems that are hard to diagnose like Mm -hmm. autism and headaches and fatigue and and it could be caused by like, you know, a bunch of different things. Um, so, so I think medical treatments gets wrapped up in, in science yeah. as well, but yeah, people don't have an understanding of like how science works and 
and who scientists are. So um, I hope by doing things like this, you know, people see us as like yeah. honest beings with and integrity and like, and, and honestly, like we're, we're doing this to, to help people or pursue yeah. the advancement of knowledge. Like nobody, nobody is in science for money. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> like the people who are in there for money are like, maybe like science in terms of like drug development sure. or like, you know, pharmaceutical research yeah. or something, but in the government, like, um, no, nobody really makes, I mean, you might get <laughs> a good salary, but you, I mean, you can make a lot of money doing other stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. Do you think that it's also kind of like, I think when I was growing up, someone who had like a doctorate, who was a scientist, like I'm looking at like you and me in this zoom. And you and I don't look like any scientists I ever saw growing up, honestly. <laughs> right. You know, the, I don't, I'm just be honest, like it's kind of the stereotypical looking person and kind of a stiff person, almost soulless in a sense, uh, only, only concrete based. And sometimes I, I don't, I'm interested in your opinion. Like, do you think that scientists need to be more relatable to like, I don't know, like, common people, regular people, because sometimes it seems like, like you're doing like the fancy scientists. I was drawn to it. I was like, oh, this person seems like they actually have a good time. <laughs> like they're like, yeah, like a normal person. And sometimes I think right. the scientist seems like this non-human person some way. Mm -hmm. Like they're just so like, I hate to say kind of boring, only lives in a laboratory, whether that's true or not, the perception can be reality for many people. And then think if you take that like me, I grew up in a very progressive household and I lived all over the world. So think about somebody who never had that. And then they see somebody, they're like, I have nothing in common with this person. You know, what are your thoughts about that? You know? Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I think that's a big problem that people don't see scientists as, as normal people. Yeah. And I mean, there, there are, I mean, the stereotype does have some truth in it, you know, yeah. like some, some people are, um, you know, not that great social skills. Yeah, or exactly. They may, be, they may be more nerdy and stuff like that. But there's yeah. a lot of people who who defy that. And even yeah. if they aren't the best at social skills and more nerdy, you know, they still have like hobbies and, um, <laughs> you know, they still can probably have a good time. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I think that's a big uh, problem. And yeah. I didn't know any scientists growing up except for. Yeah. I mean, the only one I knew about was Jane Goodall and then yeah. really everyone else was dead, like Einstein. And um, so, yeah. I mean, I guess like Bill Nye is the other one right, right. Um, yeah. that people know about. But yeah, I think it's it's so important to see that relatable and um, and then to, like you said, to be able to trust information as yeah. well. So like they see you're a more normal person that you have the same cares as they do about, yeah. um, you know, like their families and, um, you know, just like well-being and things like that. And, um, there was, shoot, there was something else I wanted to say, but I forgot. Um, <laughs> oh, and one thing I also think scientists need to work on is I feel like there's this stigma of like, I'm better than you or yes. I'm smarter than you. Yeah. And, and scientists, you, you know, they're definitely smart, but so much is really about perseverance and just working hard. Yeah. Um, so I try to not dumb it down, but, but make yeah. it more relatable. I get it. Yeah. People need that <laughs> and, though. You know, it's like, yeah. they, it's like, 
okay, you and I have a lot of formal education. Like if somebody talked to me about statistical analysis and, and the end number and you know, discussion and methodology, I could have that discussion. We could talk about a right. meta-analysis and all the data related to it. But I don't think sometimes scientists realize like nobody, most people don't understand that shit. Like they don't, they don't like, they're not looking at this really long research article. I'm like, oh, I'm going to dive into this and know all the components of it. Just look, read the headline. Right, exactly. You know, that's a problem, I think, you know? Yeah. And I think the way scientists interact with each other too is like the more jargon you use, the smarter you're seen and seen (laughs) as. So, so I think, I think that's a big problem or I think that's a big reason why we've had this science communication issue is because like I said, we talk to each other and we're trying to impress each other and, and not, (laughs) not in like, and not in like a, like a, I don't know, like a boastful way, but you know, if you're a graduate student, a lot of graduate students suffer from imposter syndrome. They don't Mm. think they're good enough. So like to compensate for that, they, you know, they make sure they use the right dragon, dragon jargon (laughs) and, you know, talk about models and the latest statistical stuff. And then, um, like even I, I always considered myself a good communicator, but when I graduated from, from my PhD and then got a job at a museum, I realized how far graduate school took me like mm-hmm. down that road and, and going back to the museum, it's like, oh, wow. Like I really have to, um, you know, like, like get to the root point and yeah. not talk about models and stuff like that <laughs> Yeah, and not use jargon. I totally resonate with that. When I completed my PhD, I was in such an academic mindset yeah. That whenever I, when I started actually working like in the private sector and stuff, I had to like almost detrain myself to speak like that mm-hmm. and write that way because nobody would understand me. Like they'd be right. like, you know, I'm dealing in fitness and wellness. People are like, what? You know, they're like, what does that mean? And I think that's kind of the disconnect is you have academia. There's a lot of intelligent people, but it's like, okay, if you're great in your own community of other academians and the whole thing, I mean, that's fine. But like, what's mm-hmm. the point of the research if nobody knows how to read it or exactly. they don't even know like how to even start interpreting it, you know, like, yeah. And, and that's another reason why I think we've had the communication problem is because scientists aren't trained to communicate and, yeah. and now with social media and stuff, there are science communication jobs. And I always felt like in graduate school, they were presented to me as like, oh, if you don't like research or almost kind of like if you can't cut it in research, like you can oh. do science communication. Mm. But science communication, it, I mean, it's its own like field of science, essentially. And um, just because you're a good scientist doesn't mean you're going to be good at science communication. Um, and it's it, it takes a lot of um, work to try to to try to get it right and um, and change some minds or get people thinking differently or understanding what's going on. Um, and I, oh, I did want to say something about science too, like growing up in school and even in college, you're taught that science is like memorizing facts yeah. and, um, or like if you have to solve problems, whatever, it's like, you're, you're, there's an answer you're going after. There's a right and wrong answer. And then once you, are a scientist, really your whole job is to understand questions, find answers to questions that nobody has solved before. So, yeah. 
So um, there are no right or wrong answers. Um, so I just think we should teach science in schools to be more like what it actually is. What, what is it actually in your mind that would, would resonate with people? Like they said, oh, that makes sense to me. You know? I mean, so it's about coming up with a question or, or mm -hmm. looking at something and being curious about it. Um, or, you know, if you are a scientist, you read the work of other scientists and you just you just think of something that that's new and you yeah. and then you conduct an experiment to try to figure out how to answer that question. So they do yeah. they do teach you in school like how to run an experiment right. and, and uh, you know controls and sample size and stuff like that but i feel like there's not enough emphasis on it and still when you're doing it it it's always it was always like to demonstrate a certain principle like like um i don't know when i taught undergrad non um majors biology like we had to do this one on enzymes yeah so again there was like a right and a wrong result like oh you're you're I can't remember what it was, but like it should float to the top or something. And it, yeah. it, it, you didn't do it right if it didn't. So it was more about like, how well can you follow the protocol rather than like, you know, let's think of a question that's never been answered or if it has been answered, who cares? But like pretend it hasn't been answered. Like, how would you, how would you study that? And, yeah. and getting kids to, to think along those lines and then, and then, or, or even dissecting scientific papers or study maybe i mean this would be obviously more advanced but our teachers yeah. could distill the scientific paper down but like going back to that blueberry study like okay it reduces cancer by 25 percent. let's look at the study yeah. how many people were used and were they all men were they all of a certain race were they all of a certain place like understanding the biases within the the study and um and and, and it's it's not to say that like you know, that's a bad study because of that, because with humans, it's really, really hard to conduct robust For studies sure. because we're ethical beings. <laughs> you can't just yeah. manipulate us. So there are going to be fields like the health field where maybe you have a sample size of like 30 and like that's that's a good number for that particular yeah. study. So. Um, so yeah, just understanding all of that stuff. And there's so much stuff in our daily lives that we could use for that, like, you know, like this climate report and there's yeah. always like health things, um, the vaccines, obviously, um, the disease spread. Um, yeah, a bunch of different things. How does someone break down? I mean, I have my own ideas, but I think like some of these things, the, they're so long. You know, it's, oh, this 100-page report, like, I mean, you're going to lose a lot of people. I mean, people can't even read a three-minute article. How are they going to read, like, a 100-page report? You know, it's like, how does a person get the gist of something like that? Uh, you know, when they have access to all this information online, how do they, I think we're suffering from digital literacy in many ways, but yeah. what's your takeaways on that, you know? I do think people need an interpreter. I think that sure some people are going to read the 100 page report honestly though i'm not going to no, like, i don't have the time no, i'm not reading that <laughs> so i think like you said it's more about digital li literacy so like figuring out like who are trusted sources mm. and um i think that it's a great idea for scientists to start their own podcasts or yeah. create their own blogs and break that stuff down so i try to do some of that stuff um, and I know that there's, um, 
Andrew from the speak up for blue podcast. He's another one. He does. He like, he, his is all about Marine stuff. So he mm. will see papers about like, I don't know. He had a topic like, like do sea turtles, um, survive after they were rehabilitated. So mm. nobody's going to read that paper, but you could listen to that podcast and his podcast, yeah. I think are like 15 minutes and he's a scientist. He's a Marine biologist. So like, I guess like, like having people do that sort of stuff, but then you need to be able to analyze their background and see how, yeah. how reliable of a, of a source that they are. That could be tough. It is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Credentials. So yeah. credentials. Um, so getting, I mean, getting a graduate degree is, is great, but there yeah. are some good science communicators out there who don't have a graduate degree. I just think the graduate degree is really important because yeah you uh, when you get a master's or a thesis master's or a phd mm -hmm. you have to have a project from start to finish sure. um and maybe maybe some parts are not like you might have samples previously collected for you or something but essentially you're like doing the full write-up and it's like your yeah. your baby whereas if you get a bachelor's degree you just you just don't have that experience and yeah. everything nothing goes according to plan when you're doing science. So just like understanding all those bumps in the road and the whole process, I, I just think it's important for, for science communication, but there, there are communicators out there who, um, who, yeah, who have their bachelor's, um, trusted sources too. So I can't, I knew I wanted to make a blog post out of this. I can't remember if I ever <laughs> did or not, but yeah, like a list of trusted sources. So like national geographic is great. Yeah. Um, vetted newspapers. I know newspapers are, yeah. are a hot topic Oof. now, but New York times, Washington post, um, they do the research. There's some really great science writers out there like Carl Zimmer. Um, but yeah, like certain, even like television channels, some of them can get kind of blurry, yeah. uh, because you do need that entertainment value too. I mean, right. I understand like, like some of this stuff it's, it's not that it's, it's, it's not that it's not interesting, but you need like a hook or there's yeah. things that are people, people are innately curious about. Like I've been, I've been doing some television shows recently on, um, cryptids, which are like yeah. Bigfoot and the Yeti and stuff like that. So, so, um, so yeah. So even though the show's might be on something that scientists, um, you know, don't agree is real. Uh, like we don't think that there's a Bigfoot or a Yeti <laughs> no out there. Out there? Like no. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of people or the organizations are probably afraid to talk about it because of, um, yeah. looking, yeah, look, look, like looking foolish. So I, I take those opportunities and, and use it as like, okay, how, how do we know that this creature doesn't exist? And, right. and, yeah. So it is. So you do need that, that entertainment factor. And, um, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's definitely a challenge. It really is. Yeah. You know, what's interesting. I did a, a small kind of little solo cast recently called performance equals movement because I was in a really good conversation with somebody and we were basically talking about if facts meant everything to people, then you would have compliance on a lot of things. Oh yeah. You know? But people often move by the performance of something, whether it's right or wrong. If the performance is good, people tend to move towards yeah. it. 
And I think that's the thing with science. I mean, I, you know, I might call it charisma or not being boring or whatever Mm -hmm. entertainment, but sometimes I think that's what hurts science is that the lack of charisma, the lack of performance. And I mean, you could have the smartest person, the most intelligent scientist up there, but if everybody's like, I'm going to go leave the room or take a nap, you know, it's not getting through to people, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's like, you know, and like the whole likability factor too. Like they talk about that with politicians, like you could have a really smart politician, really qualified, but if they don't have that charisma, that likability, then they're not going to get elected. So, so yeah, it's more, and I've learned that working at the museum, that it's more about like, like to make messages effective it's more about reaching people emotionally like using emotions so you can have you can have data to support you know whatever you want to say but i mean that's why people use images of like polar bears being starved and things like that because it cuts to the more emotional part of things rather than showing up a graph um but yeah emotions and then the other big thing is reaching people where their values are. And I think that's actually Mm. most important for scientists because we don't always agree with those values, but, um, I think, and, um, there's research out to show, to show this, like if you, if you fit something that you want to convey in those values, then it can be more effective in in terms of teaching. Can you give an example of that, you know, at some point about it, about that? uh, So, I mean, a lot of scientists, I would say, are atheists and for climate change, like working with churches and Mm -hmm. maybe pulling um, Bible verses about protecting Uh the earth and stuff like that. So you're not like disqualifying the the data, but you're you're putting it in a a lens where people are more receptive to it. Um, and I do know there actually with the Society for Conservation Biology, there are um, scientists who work with different religions and yeah. um, some religions are really great for conservation, like like Buddhism, yeah. they're vegetarians, um, they, they, they care a lot about wildlife. So I think like some of that stuff has missed opportunities and so many people go to church or have a religion. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, maybe something that you're not involved in or, or working with people who are involved in them. Um, and the, the message, the messenger is really important too. Completely. So like, like if I went to a church and talked about this, it probably wouldn't work. So I would have to like work with somebody who is science minded and goes to that church and, and, um, or even, I mean, even just things with like wolves, wolves are really hot topics. So like working with somebody who came from that local community, not somebody who like, you know, is from New York city. Yeah. So, so all that stuff is, is important as well. I think the messenger is completely important and yeah. the values of people that I think that's really interesting. Actually, I came across that. Uh, I've been listening to a podcast. Uh, I think it's Dr. G. I can't remember his name, but it's science plus God. And uh, I think he's like a theoretical physicist and um, a Christian. And I love his podcast because he brings it from both points of view. And I thought, man, this is like, this is truly incredible because it's yeah. like bringing together two things that often people try to split apart with it. Also like that in philosophy and stuff, you mm-hmm. know, how is, as a scientist yourself, it's, I mean, I don't, please don't answer this if you don't want to, but like, how is like, <laughs> how, how do you see that in a sense of science and spirituality? Because I do see like what you said, like a lot of scientists 
are atheists, but there's also a very large amount of scientists that are not, and that's not being reported yeah. either though, you know? Yeah. Um, this is something I've become more interested in mm -hmm. recently because I was atheist for a long time. And more mm -hmm. recently I've become a lot more spiritual. Yeah. And, um, I think that there's a lot more out there, like you said, then mm -hmm. we are giving credit towards, and maybe like our scientific research or whatever is not the proper venue to go about it. But I do think scientists like have these moments. Like, I mean, so I work with animals and, um, you know, mostly ecologists who work with nature and like, we have, I mean, we definitely have spiritual moments out in nature, yeah. like looking at certain animals, you feel certain connection or just, you know, being in nature, you feel certain connections. And I was yeah. listening to this one episode of, um, um, the ologies podcast. It was mm -hmm. the episode on Moss and I forget her name, but she, she was talking about like that spiritual connection. I was like the first scientist I had heard talk about it openly. Yeah. Um, so I think we should just be more receptive to it and not, and not, even if you don't believe it, not look down on people who yeah. do believe it. Like I saw Neil deGrasse Tyson on, on Bill Maher a uh -huh. couple of weeks ago. And it was about UFOs yeah. and, you know, scientists are going to be like, that's not true, whatever. But there is New York times has been reporting that like Naval pilots are coming out and talking about UFOs. Yeah. So these are like reputable people and lots of people. And they're even like Obama had a yep. statement like saying like, and I'm not saying I believe in UFOs or anything, <laughs> but, but he, he was just very dismissive about it. Like yeah. he, and Bill Maher's like, well, what do you think that they are? And he just was kind of like, you know, glitches on the radar and he just kind of like really dismissed it instead yeah. of at least, I felt like, I felt like you should have, people want to be heard basically. That's what yeah. it is. So, um, so acknowledging to what they think to some extent before you, before you talk about the data or what it could possibly be or something like that. But I feel like that kind of turns a lot of people off. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I would love to see more science and spirituality and especially now because there's so much talk about diversity and mm -hmm. so much of um, conservation work has to do with local communities and um, indigenous communities. They have really strong connections with nature and, and wildlife. So I've, I've actually wanted to do a podcast episode about like bringing someone in to talk about the spiritual connection to, to nature and wildlife and their culture. And, yeah. and I think like, yeah, like scientists can tap into that more. Like this is a, an important animal for this culture and it's declining. And like, how can we work with the cultural aspect of it and the the science of it to to bring it back or to help that yeah you know what's I, I i think there's very open-minded of you and i think there needs to be more of that i think sometimes scientists believe that if they have this like very big spiritual well that it it's going to contradict their science or yeah. maybe you're afraid of the fact that what if something's out there that you can't prove but you have to have belief in it. Not everything's concrete. You can believe in science and be very spiritual yeah. at the same time. I don't know why it's always separated. I really don't. I mean, I think because I think because people think of spiritual, I think they think of religion sure. and there are a lot of 
discrepancies between specific religions and science. Sure. So like, you know, obviously evolution. Um, so I think that's why it's hard for scientists to hold space for, for both of them. Right. But what's made me a lot more open-minded is I, I got really interested in through running my own business and stuff like mindset and stuff like that. So I've been learning a lot about like neuroscience and, yeah. um, our belief systems and stuff like that. So that's kind of like what opened my mind to this stuff. And, um, yeah, I do think I, I actually bet there are probably, I think I read something like that. That sounds familiar where we're scientists, like we're more spiritual or religious yeah. than, than they, they said they were, um, Completely. to their peers. Yeah. I just think it's a thing of like, it's almost like a taboo thing. You know, I think in, in culture, yeah. we have a lot of taboo things that we, throughout the decades, especially in the last 50 years, we're trying to break down the walls of those things. You know, whether it's from science, spirituality, gender, whatever it is, and that there's always a story behind the story. That's always mm -hmm. what interests me. Like when I first found out about you, I was like, huh, there's a story in here about <laughs> wildlife biology and a fancy scientist. I'm like, why haven't I seen this type of person before in science? And I'm always pulled towards the thing other people are not seeing. For yeah. That. So for me, like for me, you are you are a very different entry into this time and space and life and science. And I, I'm pulled towards that. I'm like, yeah, I want to support that. I, yeah. yeah, seriously. I've, I've told so many people about you, Stephanie, seriously. <laughs> so many people. I was like, this is one. And actually, whenever I, uh, when people, you know, come to me about the show or I seek out people, I always send your episode as one of the oh, wow. examples. And so a lot of people have listened and watched, and I think it's changing their mind about science and wildlife. And, and, and this, like you said, with animals, it's hard to like, if you go to Yellowstone and you see a herd of bison, like I have, it's hard to not feel something bigger than yourself when you see it. Yeah, it really exactly. Is, you know, even, I mean, even just, I saw a deer the other day and I happened to be really close to it and it yeah. felt like, you know, it's such a cool connection. Yeah. It's just, you know, so I think you're bringing forth some good things and that are really, I think you're, you're, it doesn't seem like you're afraid to challenge like the status quo. You're like, yeah, there's some things with science we need to redo or we need to rethink about. And I think some people just don't want to even say that, you know? Well, it's because I'm working for myself now. So I can't, <laughs> status you're quo. free. You're like, <laughs> but, but it's, it's true though. Like when, when I talk to people who work for the government and stuff, there's so many things that, you know, they have to fly by, um, yeah. you know, whoever approves it that they can't outright say what what they want to say or um or yeah just like even what the science says as well you ever feel like maybe i mean i, I get i i check in on what you're doing but obviously not everything like do you ever feel like maybe some of the points of views you have maybe are maybe you're you think about the cancellation aspect of things this cancel culture and all this stuff do you ever worry about any of that um i i it's crossed my mind. I don't, I don't think I worry about it. Um, I try to be very sensitive on issues where, yeah. where that's possible. And if it is an issue that maybe I want to talk about, but I don't have that firsthand experience, I would bring somebody on to talk about it. Yeah. But I think I'm, 
Yeah, I think I, I don't think I'm worried about it as much. I, I tend to um really think about what, what yeah. I Yeah. Well, say. you're not an outrageous like sayer of things that I've seen, you know. You're yeah. I mean, yeah. it does it does cross my mind though sometimes with like, you know, like the cryptids and stuff like that. Yeah, <laughs> like talking yeah. about that, like at least entertaining the thought of them. Like, are people not gonna take me seriously? Or is it gonna be like <laughs> manipulated in a way where it sounds like I believe in them or something? Or yeah. But yeah. um but um yeah, no, it is. I mean, it is I don't think I'm big enough to be canceled either. <laughs> you gotta be thing. people, you gotta be a certain level to get canceled. <laughs> you're you're down here with us, don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think people will care enough to cancel me. Yeah, it's an it's just interesting. I think you're doing such awesome work. Thank you. Um, I really do believe that. And uh I say it again, I reached out because I'm curious about what you're doing. And I think Thank a lot you. of people are curious for sure. And uh you know, it's funny, like when you do a podcast, I do a podcast and sometimes the people closest to you don't listen to any of your stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and my wife, I got on, I was like, you need to listen to my podcast. It's like 300 plus episodes. She's like, I know, I know. I said, I'm even doing episodes that I know you would love, like wildlife biology and stuff with this lady, Stephanie. She's like, oh yeah. And she listened to it. She's like, I got to listen to more of these. It, it was, that was really good. Oh, great. <laughs> like, great. <laughs> Yeah. It's so much fun talking to people like you. I always have a great time. Oz, thank you so much. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely wanted to have you back because I just thought we had a great conversation the first time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I try to ask interesting questions. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't, you never know. Uh, but, um, I find what you do is ex- extremely important, especially in the time we're living in right now. So I encourage you to keep doing what you're doing. You know? Thank you. Thank you so much. And, um, I'm glad that fancy scientist influences you. So for people out there who don't know, I feature a different fancy scientist every week. Um, and that's so important too, because then people can realize they can become scientists and yep. science has a major diversity problem um, mm-hmm. yes. in, in my field. And I think it's true for all sciences, but you know, yeah. it's mostly white, white people in my field, the, the women is better. Um, so at right. the school level, like graduate school, it's, it's 50, 50 men and women, and it may even favor women. Um, but the higher positions, it still hasn't worked out, but we have a major issue with, um, with, I mean, not, not having enough people of color, um, and even, even just like a diversity of backgrounds as well. So like, that's why I feature those different scientists. Like one was a beauty pageant contestant or she was in beauty pageants. She, another one was, I had a couple of people who be models. And, um, so, so yeah, just trying to show, show diversity of personalities, um, and, um, and yeah, hopefully show other people like, yeah, you can be a scientist too. Yeah. I think it's a great thing that you're doing. And, uh, I'm just grateful you gave me some more of your time. I really appreciate <laughs> thank it. You. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, thank you so much for being on Stephanie and, uh, have an awesome day. Thanks. You too. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the rate and review section. Thanks, everyone. Hey, Becky, what about this beat for your next song? Mm, it's cool, but I'm into faster stuff lately, like Xfinity that gives me beyond gig speeds. Got it. What about this then? Mm. 
It sounds powerful, just like Xfinity. Because its supersonic Wi-Fi has three times the bandwidth, you can connect hundreds of devices at once. That's what I call power. Unbeatable internet from Xfinity. Made to do anything so you can do anything. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. Requires compatible Xfinity gateway. Limited quantities available. Grand Canyon University, a Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering over 250 engaging programs online. GCU integrates the free market system and its welcoming Christian worldview perspective into its academic programs and throughout its online campus. GCU's online students received over $144 million in scholarships in 2021. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you qualify for. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University.